Today's reading is from John chapter 19 verses 16 to 27. So he, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. May the Lord bless this reading from his word. Don't panic, don't panic, it's all going to be alright. Thank you, Jesse. If we could ask Mary today to reflect on those eternal moments at Calvary, how do you think she would have described the experience? She had been the chosen instrument to carry and encapsulate this miracle through to his momentous birth. This was her firstborn son and a firstborn child. Joy upon joy. Every mother listening can register with the unbridled wonder. On that very first night, Mother Mary would give her Yeshua rest in the humble climbs of a cave and in the belly of a simple wooden manger, feeding trough as there was no space in the inn. For all our reading the divine side of human history, it was Mary who would walk the entire human road with her supernatural baby that would physically grow into the man who had always been God. She had nursed him from the womb. She had watched his growing steps that had delighted her mind and warmed her heart as exemplified by the words in Luke 2:51. She had watched his ability to bless hands redeeming on a tree with carpentry which would restore many in his public ministry and we're now experiencing the full extent of the curse 
of humanity on that final redemption tree. On that Friday morning, all about her was noise. Jerusalem was in an uproar. Her worst fears had come true. Could she really conceive this end for her firstborn? Who really could? The aroma of evil was polluting everywhere. The vile scoffing of those who could not handle this prophet out of Nazareth had found strength in his weakness. We can scarcely conceive the inhumanity of it all. There must have been a moment when Mother Mary pondered how it all began in Bethlehem. Now she understood, yes, the future was cast before she wrapped this miracle in what many of our translations describe as swaddling cloth. This was no ordinary cloth for an ordinary child, no. This was indeed burial cloth stored in the cave. The time, the place and their lack of resources had called for ingenuity. Who could have conceived the genius this action would have foretold? You see, this child was born to die, and to die so many more could live. Now this reads warm and comforting for our New Zealand world on this Sunday morn. But as the clock ticked toward midday on this Black Friday that would become good, events did not seem so clear-cut but this woman widowed from her husband and soon to be widowed from her firstborn. Mary's second loss could only magnify the first. However, Jesus would not forget the maternal bond that was created on that starry night many years before. When we declare Jesus saves, this is not only about the cosmic pursuit. His incarnation proves this, was not, this would not only detail the spiritual, Jesus would fulfil his role as a faithful son. He would not break this bond, even as he would break Mary's heart. His words, this third statement contained in the passage that Jesse read for us as recorded in John 19, 26-27, is our focus this morning. It is written, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her in, sorry, took her to his own home. In verse twenty five we are introduced to those in attendance in this pivotal moment. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's son, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. As one compares other scriptures, it seems, seems his mother's sister was none other than the mother of this John, the apostle, the Salome in Mark 15 verse 40. Jesus would have a number of women attending throughout his ministry, which was a slap in the face of the, for the cultural establishment of the day. They would not leave Jesus in his hour of need. According to Matthew 26, 56, all his disciples fled at his arrest. It seems only John would return. This would validate Jesus' own description, or John's own description, excuse me, for himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Whereas the other disciples were focused on self-preservation, John was thinking about Jesus. When interpersonal love is flourishing, 
It is fundamentally rooted in seeking the best for another person. John exemplifies in these moments, even as Jesus did so on the cross. Jesus would have understood the potential real-life cultural consequences and severity that his loss would mean for his mother. Things were not looking good at this time for the sect of the Nazarene. Who would identify with this people once this deceiver was destroyed? Jesus is aware. He begins his words with woman, which is better translated as dear woman. One commentator describing this quote as an affectionate and respectful way of speaking to her. His care for humanity and sacrificial actions on the cross now had a tangible focal point in the material, emotional and spiritual instructions to his mother and the one whom he most trusted for her care now that he was to fundamentally fundamentally leave this temporary home. Just before we consider the depth of message, consider the emotional cross Mary was bearing at this time. She had been broken in half when Joseph had died. And now when children are supposed to grieve for their parents, Mary was again bleeding from deep. Every mountain range that rushes into life must needs many valleys and numerous peaks to create such beauty. Think about this in your own life. Yes, this Friday would be the deepest, darkest valley, but it would soon soar with resurrection life. As we drill deeper on, the, on these moving words for Jesus, his mother, I want to attempt to also go deep with two points while only lightly drilling on two more. Yes, if you've spent any time with me, time may steal us because I tend to have too many words. But let us begin. Point number one. Jesus' third word on the cross was centred on honouring his father and his mother. A faithful Jew was serious about fulfilling the whole of the written law, which contained 603 more commandments than just the ten on tablets of stone. The Jesus of the Gospels was not concerned about alleviating the standard, but in fact would raise it. It was not simply about the doing for Jesus of Nazareth. It was about the why you would do it, and even to the what extent. Obedience was not a dirty word for Jesus that it is for many of us. While Samuel, 1 Samuel 15.22 would point out that obedience is better than sacrifice, and Keith Green would remind us of this in song, King Jesus would live out that the ultimate expression of obedience is proven when these concepts are united in obedient sacrifice. Practically, in the gospel records, this would make adultery more than just the physical act. Murder about what starts the process and leads to the act and the eternal brokenness, cosmic distortion and consequences of sin more significant than even compared with the temporary physical marks that could be described as a better option than continuing through. Yes, Jesus was an extremist, which is how Paul frames this positively in Romans 5, 7-8 in these words. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one 
would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was not normal and neither should we. And Jesus was not neither or fallacy. Yes, the Jesus of the Bible is the literal embodiment of grace, but this was not at the expense of righteousness or the purity of one's pursuit toward the holiness of God. Jesus would save his harsh words for the religious, not because of their actions per se, but because they were not ultimately coming from a changed interior. It is the inside of the cup that makes one evil, Jesus would insist to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 25 to 26. Considering the consequences of the general condition, these words should also be construed as articulations of grace. On the other hand, Jesus' outwardly soothing words will say for the outcasts and rejects of society. Yet these were not free from the demands of a transformed life. There was a cost involved. While earlier manuscripts did not contain Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery in John 7, 53, verse 11, they are nonetheless consistent with his witness. He would finish this interplay with those who wanted to rock pile this dirty woman with the admonition from now on, sin no more. We struggle to reconcile this balance in our own lives and to model this in a missional way is mandatory. But the calling of a holy life in light of God's character is made explicit in 1 Peter 1. The question is, why do we struggle? Why is the concept of obedience couched with such negativity? It is true that we can impute the example of the Pharisees is the content of obedience. It is also true that we can imbibe the cultural message that claims true freedom is to live a restrictionless existence. But it is more insidious. We think we know what is best and we act like it. And we think that if we have to obey an outside source, this will not only restrict our personal freedom, but also damage our identity. This is our pride of life. It begins with the first lie. We believe we know ourselves best. I know what is best for me, we say. Remember the garden? Satan's first breakage in our chain was when he encouraged the state of personal autonomy in our ancestors. We have replaced thinking God's thoughts after him for thinking for ourselves ever since. The Gospel says, you have no idea until you realise you have no idea, which is when you begin to see that it is God who has the ideas. I'll repeat that. You have no idea until you realise you have no idea, which is when you begin to see that it is God who has the ideas. It is therefore grounded in humility. It is birthed out of brokenness. It is a rejection of our own ability to source this. As John Calvin said, there is no worse screen to block out the spirit than confidence in our own intelligence. This is the preparatory part for accepting God's authority in our lives. 
the closer we orbit this concept each day, the more we realise that understanding God's will, grasping God's word and following God's way is the best place. The result? His commands begin to move from being burdensome to being what they really are, which is releasing. And we start to live like Jesus. Therefore, true freedom is not to be free from restrictions, but only those that inhibit our existence if we truly and completely know what is best for ourselves. The fundamental claim of the Bible is this is found in Jesus. True freedom is found in knowing the perfect source, both conceptually but also experientially. While Jesus was sinless, he found true pleasure in honouring his heavenly Father, and because this is true, he would also seek to honour his father and mother in all of his days, based on the revealed will of God in the fifth of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 12. Honour your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. One commentator has described the verb which is a appeal imperative for all you Hebrew majors. It's a call for people to give their parents the respect and honour that is appropriate for them. It could be paraphrased to say, give them the weight of authority that they deserve. Next to God, parents were to be highly valued, cared for and respected. When one takes into account the full sense of this word's usage, it would also involve material possessions. We can witness this interpretation in the practice of Jesus' own words. He excoriated the Pharisees when failing to support their parents because of a misguided notion about devotion that became, that became a means of revoking their parents. The use of korban had created a wall when there should have been a bridge, as affirmed in Mark 7, 9-13. Whether we base our actions on what has now become our own personal tradition or we free ourselves through an indiscriminate use of being led by the Spirit, we can also be guilty of this charge. Jesus is saying, by the fruit of your actions, a judgment can be made. In their misguided zeal, the Pharisees broke the law when they believed they were doing their best to complete it. Now here was Jesus on the cross God's final sacrifice in obedience to his father's revealed will, honouring both his fathers and his mother at the same time. Jesus would live the true korban and show us we can do likewise. If we return to our text in John 26 and 27, Carson describes the language in the interchange as being legal and quite similar to the terms used commonly in adoption proceedings. Jesus was diligent in this pursuit. As mentioned, the financial viability in those days was a dangerous occurrence for a widow. The early church would understand this reality as we read in Acts 6 when the seven were chosen to administer, which is also confirmed in many of the epistles. We intimately grasp it is the responsibility of parents to look after their offspring in their beginning. But so, but so, that these children are best placed to look after their parents at their end. This is the normative way. 
while Jesus would leave in his prime, he would still make sure his mother was provided for. He was a faithful son. He would honour his father and his mother in his life before honouring his father in his death. What a God. What a man. Now there is also cosmic importance attached to this event that must not be missed. Jesus was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Any sin would have corrupted this offering and so invalidated its purpose. Jesus was still on the clock of humanity in these final hours. There was absolute cosmic significance in what took place. Jesus had to fulfil the law to the end. Not doing so would have been sin. It would have ended the pinnacle in pursuit. Redemption would have been lost. Satan's cruel game would have come into play and we would have been finished. Hypothetical as history has proven these words, as Jesus was not about to miss this moment, the responsibility was still the Son of Man's to fulfil in real time. And he did. It is finished because Jesus never, comes, never succumbed to Satan and never sinned. This honouring action, therefore, has cosmic importance and we could say a forensic righteousness significance. Now what about you? The application of the law for the believer today is one when there is much comment. But remember, nine of the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament. The writer of the Hebrews affirms that our Sabbath day is now fulfilled in the abundant rest that should be our everyday change state and not defined just by a certain day's inaction. The commandment to honour our father and our mother remains. The application of this question can also be distinctive, dependent on the cultural group. We have a number of Asian students in our midst and I believe it is appropriate to say that the pressure to honour your parents becomes culturally intense. This can be difficult to navigate, especially if your parents want you to walk away from Jesus and even implicitly. We can get some applicational assistance from the Apostles' example in 5, 27-29 of the book of Acts in the significant verse, or the significant words in verse 29 from Peter, we must obey God rather than men. We gain even greater clarity with a mention of this command in Ephesians 1, excuse me, Ephesians 6, 1-3, which says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The significant point comes in verse 1 in understanding that, quote, in the Lord modifies obey and not parents. In other words, children should not obey if their parents tell them to disobey the Lord. Again, this requires wisdom, which means you should have trusted people to talk through these issues if they arise. However, one commentator has directly described it like this. If they spur us to transgress the law, we have a perfect right to regard them not as parents, but as strangers who are trying to lead us away from obedience to our true father. So should we act toward princes lords and every kind of superiors. 
and commenting on the positive effect that results from honouring declared in verse 3. There are these words, quote, Normally, children who obey their parents end up avoiding many perils that would otherwise shorten their lives. Children should be listening up. To have godly parents is a sign of God's grace in your life, which should be matched by your desire to thank God by honouring them. It would be foolish to consider otherwise. Practically for me, the older I get, the more I desire to be in a financial position to support my parents in their unfolding years, should this need arise. This is not encouraged by a sense of duty per se. But love and thankfulness for all the care and support over the years. Duty is not burdensome when it is supported and maintained by genuine love. That is the key in keeping any commitment or commandment. And this is made explicit by this disciple whom Jesus loved in his first epistle, chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, which says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This, this identifies the real issue when we reject God's revealed will, which is an eternal exile, that he loves us, as he has promised. Therefore, fundamentally, fundamentally, it becomes a sign of our practical unbelief. Jesus would honour his father and mother with his third word in the cross. But secondly, Jesus would also live out his redefinition excuse me, of true family and validate his perspective on who is your trusted community. This next point could even practically resonate louder for many listening. So stay with me, people of Christ's sanctuary. In Matthew 12, 48 to 50, and Mark 3:35, in response to his mother and brother's desire to speak with him, Jesus would include the covenant community as a final arbiter of those who also bear the title family. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his family had not become fully integrated into the faith community. This is underscored in John 7 verse 5, where in response to his half-brother's cynical words about Jesus attending the Feast of Tabernacles, John would explain their motivation. Quote, For not even his brothers believed in him. As a heads up, if you want a significant testimony to the truth claims of Jesus, take note of Jesus' half-brother's transformation after the resurrection. At the foot of the cross, they were still not to be found. They still did not believe. The events surrounding John 7 likely took place in the early part of, of September AD 32. The crucifixion likely took place on Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. The near six-month period between these events had not impacted on Jesus' own blood brothers. We read Acts 1.14, and we have these words. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
and his brothers. Some 40 to 50 days had, had transpired since Jesus had been crucified and the resurrection had removed any cynicism and evaporated any doubt. Someone rising from the dead will do that. Jesus' brothers were now very much part of the covenant community that was about to explode as a church on the day of Pentecost. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would become a leader in the Jerusalem church, which is exemplified with Peter's words in Acts 12.17 and some 16 to 19 years after the crucifixion in the Jerusalem Council of, jo- of Acts 15. Excuse me, This half-brother James would be the leading voice. There are many proofs of Christianity, but the one that it is impossible to easily dismiss is the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul make, makes this important self-evident when reading 1 Corinthians 15. This is only magnified when you consider the response of those closest to Jesus. They could not be fooled into a position of belief from unbelief. The resurrection would prove that a prophet can be with honour even in his own hometown. However, for the significance of this point, when Jesus was on the cross, he still decided John the believer was the man to take care of his mother and not half-brother James the unbeliever. Remember, it would only be some 40 to 50 days before James would become a believer, as proven by Acts 1.14. Yet Jesus did not act out of potential, but of reality. Jesus would commit his mother's future into the faith community. Practically, you can only trust those whom you have fully bonded and given yourself to. Do you realise the extent to which Jesus wants all believers to divest themselves into each other? Biblically speaking, eternal life invades the moment you are born again. It is the already. You live that true, assured future and the together future into today. We also prove the gospel in the way we love each other. The Apostle John will record Jesus' words in 13, 34 to 35 of his gospel. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The aroma of our mutually inclusive love experience is meant to provoke those watching with the same words that those watching said of Jesus and Lazarus. See how he loved him. Practically, this means the church should become your nuclear group because this is the environment you are remade to go off. We could also say that as the purposeful significance, trust and intimacy of a potential relationship grows, so does the importance of the gospel being the defining principle. I'll repeat that. Think through with me. We could also say that as the purposeful significance, trust and intimacy of a potential relationship grows, so does the importance of the gospel being the defining principle. We have the clear words in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about not being unequally yoked. 
that a Jesus living example may be an even stronger impress in our minds. Just two examples. Be prudent when moving into a business relationship. If a partner does not live with the same view of the world as you, God may be money and they may do whatever it takes to serve this end. Very simply for all you singles, we have a number. Do not start a romantic relationship with someone who is an unbeliever as you should never consider marriage with someone who is not a follower of Christ. This is Christ-centered common sense. And it is also the outworking of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. But why? Why, you may still be, run, be wondering. Simply put, where it ultimately counts, they're dead, and you are not. In marriage, the two become one. There is a union, a joining together that cannot happen when only one person is alive. Marriage is also a God-given marker of much grander designs. This is God intended. Practically, this will be translated into a whole different set of priorities as these two distinct parts cannot become a whole. Yes, if you are dating an unbeliever, he may become a Christian. I have witnessed this happen. But, but, you are not called to be a prophet or to sacrifice but to obey. The question is, whom do you trust. My nana would marry a believer, but he went away to war and his faith would suffer a kind of death on the battlefield. While he was respectful for all their days, they were now perpetually swimming in an indoor pool when God wants our relationships to become more like an ocean to explore. One could even describe it like the Dead Sea versus the Mediterranean Sea. On the Dead Sea, you can only go so deep. Approximately two weeks before Papa would die, he would return home. There wasn't time for Nana to really experience this transformation as he was in hospital. We could see this change written all over his face. But I can tell you the difference in her life when she was widowed. She was set free to open her wings to the full extent of her God-given second life that had been clipped for so many years. Again, we have a number of single people in our midst. For all of you who are thinking of marriage and pining for a marriage partner, this is a good thing. Don't make it a God thing, which you will do and may even be doing if you reject God's plan for his children. Yes, Scripture says it is not good for mankind to be alone, but it is even worse when you must carry a dead weight for all of your days. The grass is not greener on the other side of his revealed fence. Freedom from this desire that can feel like a disease for cohabitation is when you trust Jesus more than your own ability to meet your own needs or for another to meet your needs and see that it is in the gospel that you have everything you need and your life will then rhyme. Believe. Jesus would honour his father and mother with his third words on the cross. Jesus would also live out his redefinition of true family and validate his perspective on who is your trust, trusted community. But Jesus would also prove that in the toughest of circumstances, obedience in sacrifice is not beyond you. We must be very brief. Jesus proved that when life 
is falling apart, you can stay together and still fulfill his will. Yes, in a maelstrom of suffering, it is easy to lose focus. It is easy to flounder. We have all been there in our own times of testing. Suddenly our focus becomes all about me. The key is to follow the example of Stephen in Acts 7. Words in verse 56 of primary. And he said, which is Stephen, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, have your vision always arrested by Jesus. A growing experience will give you the strength to handle any imposition. Proven by Stephen, praying for his killers to his death. Finally, Jesus would affirm that believers are also called to prioritise the physical needs of others, especially believers. Jesus did not have a spiritual versus physical dichotomy. Redemption is about the totality of life and the totality of the person. Matter is not evil. We are called to minister to the whole person. While Jesus has given us prayer to ask for all such things, his provision is not fundamentally, say fundamentally, predicated on our asking. God's fatherly grace is taking care of you, both now and into eternity. This should encourage you to rest in him and also to get arrested in prayer. Like grace, this should compel us to a good work in light of all we have. Living grace activates change. Cheap grace just detonates on arrival. It kills activity. See, Jesus was not the only one from this peer group to lose his life at this time. It was Judas. Judas loved money, status, power. His relationship with God was proven in the way he trusted God to provide. He did not. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a dead slave, was his to take. While running after the wrong things will not necessarily kill you in an instant, it is a slow death. The example of Judas, in contrast to Jesus, shows you two lives, two deaths, both dealing or both trusting with provision and in provision. Jesus trusted himself to his father and obeyed, honouring his father and mother. Judas did the same, honouring his father, the devil. We each make that cosmic and functional choice every day. Even when the king was treated like a criminal, he did not forget to act out of his true position. It's an important point. Act out of his true position. In Jesus' third word on the cross, we see a faithful and loving son. Now, I have written a book. No, this is not a commercial. One scripture that has proved pivotal in this multitude of words is Acts 4.13, especially the closing part, where the authorities recognise that this ragtag bunch of ordinary people had been with Jesus. How do we get there? How do we get there? Mary is our example. We stay at the feet of Jesus and accept the honour he has given us from the cross. This honour does not work as the world exemplify in their own pursuits. But in gaining everything from Jesus, we can now also willingly lose everything for him. 
as nothing else compares. This means we can now give up our own futile search for gaining fame for our own name and rest in his amazing grace. This is both our high calling and his answer this Sunday morning from his third word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what his death and resurrection means for us cosmically. We also thank you for what his example shows for us. We thank you for Mary. We thank you of the beginning as a young girl, really, and the miraculous events that surrounded your coming. We thank you for her faithfulness, her part in the cosmic delivery of our Messiah. I pray for the people here today who have come to hear your word. I pray that they will have heard your word and in their hearts and their minds they will have resolutely given, given themselves, committed themselves to Jesus. They'll once again realise their own tasks, their own pathways that they've constructed throughout this week when they've looked for meaning in and of themselves. And they'll realise that meaning is only found, true meaning is only found in Jesus. Speak to us. Change our lives. Give us the strength to be more like Jesus. I pray these things and then through his victorious name. We can change the unbeliever to the believer like his brothers and we thank you that you've done that through us and in us. I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who does not know you, that your spirit will speak into their heart and you'll nail them to the cross as that is the place where true life is found. Amen.